This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, that's that's towards the, the end. If you're also new to the Bible, let me recommend you can get an app on your phone to be easy to trace. We, I, I re, uh, teach from the English Standard Version, so you want to get the ESV, uh, but you can download that and you'll be able to track with what we are uh, teaching. And, and the reason it's important to have a Bible open is because we're really going verse by verse, in a lot of cases, word by word, not always, but at least verse by verse, trying to get uh, what God is teaching through this book. And we're coming to the end of the book. I think we've only got three more sermons after this. Um, next week, we'll do something on Christmas. Uh, but we're coming to the end of the book, and it's a letter where Peter is addressing suffering. Christians who are receiving persecution and opposition because of their faith in Christ. And the section we're going to read tonight is as sober as any in the book about suffering. Uh, It's very similar to what we talked about last week, but it's the expectation of suffering. Now, let me say something about why we're teaching this book. Since there's only three... Le- uh, three messages left, I thought it might be a good time to, I never discussed why I decided to teach out of First Peter. Uh, and this is the reason. Um, because in some ways, uh, our church is not experiencing a time of severe suffering. Uh, in some ways, we're experiencing a different kind of test, not the test of suffering, but the test of blessing, the test of uh, prosperity as we prepare to, uh, to move um, and open doors for us as a church to reach people with the gospel. And so really, we felt like this would be a great time to talk about this because the time to talk about suffering is not in the midst of it. The time to talk about suffering is when you're preparing for it. And so for some of us, this series, you've gone through and going, yeah, well, okay, I see all that in there, but it's just not, it's not really hitting right where I am right now because I'm not enduring severe trials. I'm not enduring what he's going to call tonight fiery trials in my life. Things are just, well, I've got some problems, but things are just kind of normal for me. So sometimes the messages don't really, uh, in this series, hit me. Well, that is fine because uh, this is a preparatory word for you because it's coming. You're in line. And your number will be called. You don't know when that is, but your number will be called and you will suffer. And it's these truths that we're learning now that will prepare us for that. Others of us are in the midst of suffering. And so this has been a very timely season, timely uh, session for you. But it's our responsibility as pastors to prepare the church and to prepare individuals for suffering. That's what we're called to do because that is your calling. As a believer, you will endure trial. And so that's why we have been teaching on this. And tonight, uh, we will hit the same theme again that Peter hits the theme of suffering because he's writing to people who are experiencing suffering. Okay. Let's read verses 12 through 19 of chapter four, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word tonight and read it, we just pray that you would speak to us. I, I pray that, uh, that you would remove distractions from us tonight. I pray that you would remove temptations for our minds to wander. I pray that you'd help us to focus on what you have to say in this passage. For those in the room who are suffering as Christians tonight, I pray for encouragement and strength and hope. And for those in the room who are doing well tonight and are not really experiencing any unusual suffering, I pray that this word would be preparatory, Lord, that you'd be laying a foundation, a deep deposit in us so that we are prepared when difficulty comes. And for those in the room who don't even know you, I pray the warnings of this text that one day they will stand before you. I pray the warning of this text would would arrest their hearts and they would believe in the free grace of God tonight and receive eternal life. So, Lord, speak to us. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and that you would speak to us through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to make three points from this passage as we walk through it. Here's the first one. Don't be surprised at suffering. That's what he says. Don't be surprised at suffering. Look at verse 12. Beloved. Now, before we even get to don't, do not be surprised at suffering, isn't it powerful that he reminds them of God's love? Beloved means you are loved. They're loved by God. And secondarily, they're loved by, obviously, Peter as well. But that's where he starts in this section. Beloved. He wants them to know that God loves them. And we all need to be reminded of that. We all need to live in the good of that. No one is in this room is too aware of the love of God. You cannot be too aware until you see him face to face. You'll be accurately aware. No one in this room is too aware of the love of God. And so we need to be reminded. And when you are in trials and difficulties, most of all, you need to be aware of God's love because we can be tempted to question, does God really love me? Because if God loved me, why would this be happening? And so he reminds them, beloved, that's where he starts. He doesn't call them brothers, sister, believer, Christian. He does later. But here he just says beloved because they are beloved by God. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Man, that that sounds difficult. I mean, there's trials and then there's trials that are on fire. That's what he's saying. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you to test you. Now, what is the trial they are facing? He doesn't say, and I love it that he doesn't say it, because throughout 1 Peter, he uses generic words for suffering and trial generally. That way, if we can still be comforted by the scripture, if we're not in the exact same situation his readers were. If he was super specific, and he said the trial of, you know, don't be surprised at the trial of your 
father disowning you after you were baptized that it went into such detail, you go, oh, well, that didn't happen to me. But if it's a little more general, we can all relate. Now, we do get clues about their situation. Uh, we looked last week at verse 4. Look up at verse 4 in chapter 4. With respect to this, they, unbelievers, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So he said, you've got old friends that want to have drinking parties, orgies, sensuality. This is what he said earlier. His words, not mine. He said, this is what they invite you to come do all this and you don't want to do it. And then they go and they malign, they slander, they gossip, they oppose you. So they're being, we know that's happening. And look at verse 14 in our passage tonight. If you were insulted for the name of Christ. Okay, so they are, they are, they are being criticized. Uh, Peter is writing uh, during Nero's reign in Rome. Nero had uh, led in significant persecution of Christians. This is probably before there is an official uh, persecution of Christians. It's probably more of a random thing that happens. And most of it has to do with uh, them being opposed relationally, uh, them being opposed in their jobs, them being opposed by speech. That's mentioned a lot. If they revile you, don't revile back, he says. That means if they curse you with their language, would you don't respond in the same way if they hate you. So probably they're receiving hatred, insults, mockery, uh, these kinds of things. And so uh, that, that's what's happening. But it's broader than that. It's any kind of suffering for being a Christian. And then he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that they are receiving. Do not be surprised. Why does he say that? Because we are surprised when we suffer, and they were too. We're surprised, especially if you're a Christian, because here's what you think. God controls everything. I am trying to follow God. So why am I having such a hard time? You would think that God who controls everything, that if I am trying to follow Jesus I'm trying to live for the Lord. I'm doing my best. And then I get this. You would think I had, today, I had my devotional time. I got up early and had my devotional time. I was loving toward my spouse. I went to work. I was respectful toward my boss. Then why did my whole afternoon was just one big suffer fest with problem after problem after difficulty, opposite? Why? I mean, doesn't the Lord know I read my Bible, loved my spouse, was uh, humble and, and polite to my boss. I, I'm doing the right stuff, so why am I suffering? See, we're surprised. Here's why we're surprised. Because we read the Bible, which is about grace. We're a member of a church that's called Grace. And for all of our believing of grace, we still, deep down inside, believe that if I do good stuff, good stuff should happen to me. We all, in our heart of hearts, believe in Elf on the Shelf. That's our theology. We, we preach gospel, we believe gospel, but we are tempted by the story of the little elf on the shelf and the little elf that sits, and I'm going to talk about this for a minute, so if, I don't know if there's kids in the room or not, but I'll, I'll speak in an appropriate way. Uh, so if, I, don't, I couldn't care less if you do Elf on the Shelf or not. This isn't a critique of that. But it is a critique of the ideology which we all live under. Elf on the Shelf appears in your house. 
he, is, he or she, they have girl ones too, uh, is a scout elf. And what he does is he watches all the behavior, so the story goes, of the children during the day. And then when the children go to bed at night, Elf on the Shelf flies to the North Pole. And Elf on the Shelf reports to Santa everything that the boys and girls did. He gives a report. Are they on the naughty list or are they on the nice list? And then when you wake up the next morning, Elf on the Shelf is in a different place in the house demonstrating that while everyone was asleep, he took off and now he came back. You're not allowed to touch him. You're only allowed to talk to him. And the goal is that if you have been good, it will be reported and you will get good gifts. If you've been bad, it will be reported and you will get bad stuff at Christmas. And we often live by that. I'm being good. So why shouldn't things go good for go well for me? And if that's not enough, I did a little research because my kids are older. So my kids were the generation after Elf on the Shelf. But I did a little research, and there is now Elf on the Shelf birthday edition. I don't know if you've seen this, because it's not sufficient to manipulate children once a year. So twice a year. And I, I kind of wish they had this when my kids were younger, because I think I would have liked to use it in certain ways. You know, Elf on the Shelf. My youngest is in high school, and they have finals a week, so I have, like, Elf on the Shelf finals edition. You put him in the bedroom, and he watches if you study or not for our finals. <laughs> Elf on the Shelf, first time I'm driving the car alone edition. He rides shotgun <laughs> while that high schooler drives watching everything you do. Elf on the Shelf first date edition. There's a lot of ways. This, I, I mean, I think this thing could really do, do well to bring conviction. But uh, So I'm not judging you if you do Elf on the Shelf or anything like that. All I'm trying to say is I'm judging all of us because that's the way we live. We live that way. And so we're surprised. We're most surprised about trials when we are doing the right thing. When we are following the Lord, then we are surprised when we face trials. But what Peter has taught throughout this book, that it is in fact following the Lord that will not deliver you from trials, but will deliver you into trials. His whole point is that if you follow Jesus, you will be opposed. And if you're never opposed, beware when all men speak well of you, Jesus said. If you're never opposed, then you need to ask, are you living for Christ in a public way at all? Because if you are, you will receive pushback. You will receive resistance. And he calls it a fiery trial. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, he's not literally saying like things are getting set on fire, their house getting set. He's not talking about that kind of stuff, though that may happen later. What he's talking about is, he's already talked about it in this letter. Fire is something that purifies. Look at verse, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. He uses the same language, doesn't he? Fire and tests and trials. He says, your faith is being tested. And he gives this example. 
a, a refiner's fire takes gold or silver and burns out the impurities so that the gold is more pure. Silver is more pure. He says the same thing's happening with your faith. Tests are coming and it's burning out the impurities and your faith is eternal. It's more valuable than gold, he said in chapter one. And so these fiery trials are coming and they are a test that burns out impurities. For them, it may have been opposition and persecution and for you too. But there's other trials. There's relational trials that are fiery and burn out impurity and test us and try us. Financial trials, emotional trials, uh, persecution. I mentioned that already. Job trials, family trials. There's family trials. Sometimes they, they uh, explode this time of year. Between Thanksgiving and New Year's is family trial time for a lot of families, especially with extended families. Sometimes difficulties come. And these difficulties come to purify our faith. So Peter says, don't be surprised. He goes on to say, this isn't strange that you're having fiery trials. Yes, I know you're serving the Lord and you're having trials. That's not strange. So what he says, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, though something, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, it's just beneficial to know that it's not strange. So if you're in a difficulty tonight, if you're experiencing some kind of unusual trial, here's already in this one, one or two verses, there's some comfort for you. Number one, you're loved by the Lord, beloved. That's how he looks at you tonight. Number two, it's not surprising. It's not strange that this is happening to you. It's, it's something the Lord is doing in the midst of the trials. See, so, something that can make a trial so hard, sometimes we go through a difficulty, and what makes it so difficult sometimes is we don't understand why it's happening. Sometimes the why question is more perplexing and painful than the trial itself. Sometimes you're going through a difficult thing, you don't know why it's happening, and you're saying, Lord, why? This makes no sense. There, this is, what a surprise, this person would be acting this way to me. What a shocker that, that, that I'm being opposed at my job after what I've done there, what I've done for them, what I'm trying to do now. My motives, as best I know, were to, were, you know, they're not perfect, but they were generally in the right direction. And I don't get it. The trial's one thing. This person who was my friend turning his or her back on me and now gossiping about me and rejecting me, that's a trial. The bigger trial is, I don't know why. And he says, it's not strange. Don't be surprised at tests of faith because test of faith, chapter one, purify. And test of faith also build endurance in us. Think about James. James writes something very similar to Peter. I quote this to you because it's a very similar idea. James in chapter one of his letter says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, listen to this, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The ESV study Bible says steadfastness means a life of faithful endurance amid troubles and afflictions. So he says, he, James says, you're being tested. Trials come. They test your faith so that you can endure and mature. Have you ever known anyone who is training for a marathon? If you did, you would know about it. 
because the first rule of training for a marathon is tell everybody you're training for a marathon, by the way. Uh, usually when you sit down to eat a cheeseburger, oh, you're not having anything? Uh, no, I'm training for a marathon. Oh, great. You know, now I feel terrible. Uh, lazy, training for a marathon. Netflix marathon, that's what I'm training for. But <laughs> So the first rule is you tell everybody that you're, you're training for a marathon. The second rule is you start doing very difficult things that are painful that resist your natural appetite. You start eating differently. You start sleeping differently. I know none of this by experience, but I've heard. Uh, and, and you start exercising differently, working out differently. You start running increasing measure, increasing distances and increasing distances. And you almost always have to have a training partner because nobody could endure something like that on their own. And so you, you work and you, you, you have self-inflicted Pain, diet, uh, denying yourself, uh, working beyond what you are capable of because the painful resistance strengthens you to endure and run an, an incredible distance. And that's, what tri- that's the same thing with tri- testing our faith. It, James says it tests us that we will be steadfast, that we will endure is what he's saying. So this, this, is, this testing work is something that purifies. It's something that helps us endure. The scripture teaches us. It's not strange, so don't be surprised. It's God's way of maturing us. We'd all like to go out and run 26 whatever miles it is. We'd all, or however much, that may even be off. But we'd all like to go run like that far. But, but the only way to do that is a lot of pain and suffering. And, and difficulty in the meantime to get in shape for that. And same true as our, 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 the marathon of the Christian life. And the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not how well we start, how excited we are. And that's great for new believer excitement. Love that. So it's not just that burst of energy at the beginning. It's not just, I'm, I got baptized and now I'm excited. And it's one year, five year, 10 years, 20 years, and walking through difficulty. And I heard someone say recently, who's a little bit older than than I am, and that's pretty ancient, uh, say that, uh, you know, the the older I get, the the more difficult it appears to finish well. So those of you who are like 20 years old, and you go, oh man, now's the hardest time. When I hit like 60 or 70, that'd be a breeze. I mean, you know, I won't be tempted anymore or anything like that. I mean, you're too old to sin, or any fun sins at that point, so... (laughs) You know, you think, when I get that old, what am I going to do? But the reality, it gets more difficult in some ways to finish well. And so the the resistance never stops. God is, uh, don't be surprised because this is God's means for purifying and maturing us. Next, we're not only to just not be surprised, but we're to rejoice. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So he, he's like James there. He says rejoice. James says count it all joy. We're to have an attitude of joy when we walk through trials. Now he's not saying trials are wonderful. And so just say, this is great. What I want is difficulty because difficulty brings me joy. That's just not true. He doesn't say that every difficulty, every problem, every trial, that we're to be like giddy, happy about that very moment. What he's, he's being a little bit more specific. He says, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. So he qualifies it. As you suffer as a believer, there are reasons to be joyful for that. First of all, um, 
He says, uh, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So when you suffer in your faith, when you suffer as a Christian, there's something to be rejoicing about because you're identified with Jesus and he's identified with you. We often think that when we are struggling or suffering, that God is very distant. But this passage says, what Peter says, it is when you are being insulted for my name that the Spirit of God rests upon you. We all want to be filled with the Spirit, but I'm not sure that kind of being filled with the Spirit. That's what he says. You want to know where God's Spirit is? I'll tell you where God's Spirit is. He is upon those who suffer. You want to know where the Spirit of glory is? We know where the glory of God is. He answers it. The spirit of glory rests upon you when you are insulted for the name of Christ. When you are resisted for your faith, you are blessed and the Holy Spirit rests upon you and the glory of God rests upon you. So this is really good news. Ultimately, he says rejoice because God is with you. God is strengthening you. It's a, it's a, it's actually God at work. In you, And then he also says this, verse uh, 14, 13, uh, rejoice and be glad. You will rejoice that you, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Whenever there is suffering in the Bible, there's always a future orientation. The whole book of Revelation points to the future because the original readers are suffering terribly. Now, by that point, people are likely being martyred, beheaded, all this kind of stuff. The martyrs are mentioned in that letter in that prophecy. So the, the revelation is written to people that are losing their lives for their faith. And God just paints this future picture of how glorious it is, um, for his return and his defeat of the enemy. And so he points to the future too. And he says, look, rejoice because you are identified with Christ. Christ is identified with you and he's with you. And also rejoice that, that you will be glad when he returns for your sufferings. In other words, he's saying, when Jesus returns or you die first, whichever comes first, when you stand before the Lord, you will never regret suffering for Jesus. You will never regret. It will bring you tremendous joy to have been counted worthy to identify with your Savior in any kind of suffering or any other kind of trial that you responded with faith towards him. You will not be sorry for going through any trial in your life that caused you to look to Christ, pray to him, receive his help, rely on him. For when you stand before him, you will see the glory of that how you identified with your Savior and your suffering will forever be gone. The, the, the New Testament identifies rejoicing and suffering all the time. I ju- we just read two passages, this one and James 1, counted all joy. Not only verses, but stories too. Think about this narrative. In Acts 16, if you're familiar with that, Paul and Silas are arrested uh, for, being, for, for spreading the faith. They are beaten with rods, which that is a day of suffering. They're beaten with rods. They're thrown in jail. They're not only thrown in jail, but once in jail, their feet are locked in stocks. So, you know, so they cannot move or they cannot move. Uh, they can't get around. They're stuck. They're locked in the stocks. And Acts 16, I can't remember, maybe verse 25. I looked it up this afternoon. I think it's like verse 25 or something. It says, about midnight... And why does Luke give us that time? Because that's the middle of the night. That's the emptiest part, the middle of the, the, middle of the darkness. They began singing. They began praying and singing hymns, psalms, singing, singing to the Lord. 
and everybody hears them. That's rejoicing in the midst of their suffering because they are counted uh, worthy to suffer for the Lord. There is a rejoicing there. And their, and, and their rejoicing in the middle of trials was a witness. Everybody listened. God brought an earthquake. That jailer became a Christian uh, through that. So it's a powerful story. Or I don't know if any of you know the, um, uh, a man who suffered tremendously in the last century named Richard Wormbrand. I'm, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. I actually heard him speak. And I was thinking about this today. He died in the early 2000s, but I heard him speak probably in the late 80s. Late, yeah, late 80s, I heard him speak live in a room of about, there probably wasn't more than about 200 of us. And uh, he, was, um, he was a dissident in communist Romania. And in the 60s and in the 70s, um, he was, 1960s and 70s, he was imprisoned for his faith, beaten severely for his faith. He was a minister. And he was placed in um, solitary confinement for lengthy periods of time. Uh, he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ, uh, which I haven't read. But I read someone commenting on it. And they said that in there, Richard Wormbrand tells of being in solitary confinement, being beaten with very limited strength. And by the grace of God, he would be overwhelmed at times with joy. And he said he would actually, in his weakened state, get up in his cell and dance as if he was dancing with the angels of God. Now, that's miraculous. I read that. That is miraculous. Um, But he was a well-known, internationally known man who was tortured for Christ and ultimately was freed and then wrote and spoke all over the world. But in the midst of his suffering, the Spirit of God was on him, and the glory of God filled his heart. And he didn't celebrate that he was being beaten. He celebrated the Lord and what the Lord did, that he was counted worthy to suffer, that the Lord worked in him and through him. Rejoice in our suffering. Now, again, you may not, none of us, probably no one in the room's ever been in prison for their faith, and probably you never will be. Uh, could be, but probably you won't be. But you have other trials and other difficulties and other resistance and other opposition. At the time that Peter's writing, there are things, they're being maligned. You can be maligned for your faith and maybe right now. Insulted, you take a stand for the Lord, guarantee you will be insulted. Young people, you take a stand for the Lord, not self-righteous, not arrogant, not telling everybody else, you know, they're bad and you're great. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But you just walk with the Lord and you just speak and be open with gentle and humble, but open and you will face resistance for sure. You do that in the marketplace in your job, it may have at times career implications for you. You risk you speak up to a family member, you risk their, who's an unbeliever, you risk their disapproval. You speak up to a neighbor, you risk someone, I'm not a neighbor, but someone I'm reaching out to. I, I shared this recently with our uh, pastoral team, actually couples, we were going around talking about resistance for our faith. And I said, I, I've said things, this person's opening their life to me. I'm saying some things to them, but I have not come right out and gone clear with the gospel and God's view of sin and God's view of grace to this person. And I said, I wonder when I do, if this person will still be my friend. Not that I'm going to condemn them, but the word of God condemns our sins. And so we must know that and repent and trust Jesus. And when I bring that up, will the relationship change? I don't know, but I 
I fear that at one level. I have to look at that by faith and say, Lord, it could lead to, and if it did, then I need to trust the Lord and rejoice by someone who would reject me for my faith. Rejoice in suffering. Now he goes on to say, don't suffer for doing, basically don't suffer for sinning. He said, don't murder. He says, let, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a meddler. Wow, that's crazy. What, like, do we really need to tell the church, hey, stop murdering? I mean, what kind of church is this? Well, if you're being threatened, if someone says, if things get intense and someone says to you, hey, uh, we're going to arrest you, uh, we're going to rape family members of yours if you don't deny the Lord, uh, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your family, we're going to kill your parents, we're going to kill your kids if you don't deny Jesus. Okay, you hear something like that, the temptation would be, I'll get them before they get me. So they may harm me, I'll go murder someone. In, an, in a situation where there is persecution, that would be a legitimate temptation. They're coming at me, they oppose me, Surely the Lord would be okay with me killing them for the, in the name of Jesus? No. Do you do not murder? Or a thief. Man, they took my stuff. You know, they took, they, 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 to oppose me, they came in and ripped my stuff off. I think I know who did it. I'm going to go steal some of their stuff. No. That's not the witness. You don't steal from those even if they stole from you. An evildoer or a meddler. A meddler. Just, you know, uh, uh, we all can be tempted to meddle. It's called the comments section on a blog. Don't be a meddler. Don't be a meddler. If you've really got something that needs to be communicated in a meaningful way to that person, go and tell them. Don't be incendiary and post some hot thing on social media to get people tweaked. It happens constantly. So don't be, don't be unnecessarily meddling. So he's saying, don't do that kind of stuff. But if you suffer for being a Christian, then rejoice. Lastly, he says, he doesn't say this, but the word I would use is understand your suffering. So, so don't be surprised, rejoice. And he doesn't use the word, but I would say understand because he gives an explanation. We don't know exactly why we suffer. That's the whole point of the book of Job. The whole elf on the shelf illustration I gave, I do good. And so things should go well with me. I do bad my life should be a mess. We, we think that's the way it always is. So if someone's suffering, they must have done something wrong. If someone's blessed, they must be obey, obeying God or whatever. That's the tendency. That's the whole reason the book of Job is written. The whole reason the book of Job is written to say, you cannot predict that, that God's ways are mysterious. And the most righteous man on the earth suffered greater than any of us have. Uh, Job, the, humanly speaking, the most righteous man on the earth. So he gives that story to show you can't draw those conclusions. Um, and so we don't know specifically why you can't say I suffer. And I know exactly I'm suffering, you know, because this person's opposing me because, you know, back in third grade, I stole something. You can't make those kind of connections. I'm suffering because I'm a sinner. Sure. But you can't, you don't always know, but we can be certain that God is at work and he pulls back the curtain and gives a little picture to what happens is happening. Verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So they're suffering they are the household of God. Their suffering is a judgment. Now, whoa, their suffering is, I thought Christians won't be judged. I thought Jesus paid our judgment. I thought Jesus endured our condemnation. How in the world is God judging the church? Well, he's not judging the church in the sense of they're going to die and suffer his wrath in eternity. 
No, indeed, Jesus did take that. But their suffering, the household of God, the people of God, their suffering is having a judging effect. It always has a, a sense of uh, an effect of judging. And here's one way the church, uh, when it goes through trials, experiences the judgment of God. I, I can't tell always, but here's one way. One way the church experiences the judgment of God during trials is it has a separating effect. The Bible says that ultimately the church will be judged on the last day. God, Jesus will separate the wheat and the tare. You know that story, the wheat and the weeds. He kind of says the wheat and the weeds grow up together and you can't tell which is which, but on the last day I'll separate them. Okay. That means there's, there's people in the church who generally know the Lord. That's a Christian. That's wheat. There's people that grow up in the church or are adults in the church and they don't know the Lord. They're not really Christians. They go to church, they may pray, they may read their Bible, they may be moral, but they've never been born again. This is a great concern in the scripture. People who attend church but aren't really Christians, don't have the spirit of God in them. They all, we all grow up together. When persecution comes to the church, there is a separation that takes place. When difficulty and persecution, one way the church experiences the judgment of God is when God brings persecution to the people of God, insincere believers will bail. Nominal Christians will bail, and the church is purified. There's a judgment that happens at the church. I'm saying this is one way this could be applied, not the only way. But false believers fall away when the Christian faith costs them. When the Christian faith is, here's everything God wants to do for you. It's all about you. Everything is for your prosperity and your wealth and your health and your goodness and fulfilling your destiny and making your dreams come true. I see more stuff about Christians fulfilling dreams. Hey, the fulfilling dreams here is you go to jail. Maybe you get killed for following Jesus. But we want to say it's all about your dreams. God wants to fulfill. He's the dream fulfiller. He's all about, he's circling about you. You are the center of God's universe. That's how it sounds. If you're that Christian, man, you'll show up for a crowd. But when all of if it doesn't cost you, same thing happened with Jesus. He's making food out of nothing. He's got fish and bread for everybody. The meals on Jesus, I'm there. 5,000 people. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, you can't follow me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jesus said, speaking of ultimately we know of the Lord's supper. Whoa, I'm out of here. It says, and they all left him. It's costly. People leave. It's great. It's fun. It's all about us. Big crowd. Uh, where's Joe today? Oh, you didn't hear Joe got arrested for his faith. Whoa. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a Christian. I'm just checking things out. Yeah, then people start pulling out. This is happening in our country now, I believe, and there's no intense persecution going on. The statistics show that church attendance in the U.S. is dropping annually. But I saw some other research that was done uh, that said, when you look at those numbers more closely, here's what you'll find. The most committed people who attend, and you don't know people's heart, but the people who really attended and were more active, so to speak, those numbers aren't dropping so much. What's dropping is the nominal Christian is not showing up anymore. The person who occasionally showed up, the person who it wasn't really, they weren't building their life around serving the Lord in the church, but they were just occasionally showing up. That person has coming much less frequently or not coming at all. 
as, as it becomes more difficult to stand for the Lord in a culture, you will see nominal Christians fall away. Because if it's not real, why would you want to go through the difficulty of it? If it's not all about the greatness of a heaven on earth, if I've got to wait for my best life, then why would I even want to, maybe I don't even want to pay, do this deal. And so one way purification, when suffering comes, it purifies. Take other sufferings. Someone dies prematurely. Someone gets cancer. Someone's house burns. Someone goes bankrupt. Someone's spouse leaves them for, or commits adultery and leaves them for all kinds of difficulties. The person who does not generally know the Lord, but is just a churchgoer, that person can very easily turn from the Lord at that point. Oh, well, I'm not serving the Lord. If he did that, I served the Lord all these years and he took my husband. I served the Lord. And I understand that temptation. That's a very real temptation to think that way. But to then bail, that is that suffering begins to do the judgment of separating wheat and tares now. Now. And what happens is judgment brings purification so that when there is a culture that opposes the church and the church moves to the margins, the church thrives in the margins. I haven't been among, I've just read, but I haven't been in a church among persecuted people where they meet secretly or something like that, but I've read, and so have you probably, and it's embarrassing to think about my spiritual life compared to them. There is a purity, there is a maturity, there is a passion for the Lord when people are suffering in their faith. And it, God's not judging them like he's opposed to them, but he's bringing a purity to his church. When the church is on the margins, it's always a purer church. And the church that Peter is writing to is on the margins. And it could be, I don't know, but it could be that the committed evangelical church in America is moving farther and farther and farther to the margins of society and has less and less overall cultural influence. And we decry that and there's panic about that. Oh no, they, they did this or they did that. It's bad for Christians. And sometimes we panic about that. I'm not a prophet, but it could possibly maybe be that when that happens, it's the best thing imaginable for the church because it's a judgment of purification and the Lord is maturing his people as they are pushed together and their witness is brighter. The, the mixed witness is not there. It's a true, sincere witness. The hypocrisy is not as strong. It's, it's, it's more of a genuine church and a genuine witness for the Lord to reach more people. That's what happens. I don't know if that's happening in our country, but it could be. And I just say, when I see that, when we're marginalized, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Don't panic, but rejoice because God is doing something good in those times. So don't be surprised. Rejoice. Understand the nature of suffering. He also says for the unbeliever, it'll it'll even be worse is what he says here. And then lastly, verse 19 kind of tells, it's kind of the whole book in a verse. We'll close with this. Therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So how do you live in the midst of suffering, trials, difficulty, hard seasons, which we're all going to have them? What do you do? Well, you entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing 
good. Trust your soul. This word, this verb in trust is interesting. Um, in, in Peter's time, you didn't have banks. So you couldn't take uh, all your valuables and deposit them down at Bank of America or Wells Fargo. They didn't have that. And so you got your valuables in your house. And however you can protect them, you protect them. So if you're going on a journey, what you would do is you would leave whatever valuable, maybe it's coins, maybe it's something that's being passed down to you, maybe it's some kind of uh, jewelry or ornamentation or something valuable. Uh, whatever you have that's valuable, you would leave it with a friend, a family member, a friend. I'm going on a trip. I can't take all this with me. Would you watch this for me? That is the verb that was used. You entrust it to someone's safekeeping. It was a verb that used that was entrusting to someone for safekeeping. It's different than trust. It involves trust, but it's not just trust the Lord. It's entrust yourself to him. Entrust your soul to him. Entrust yourself to the Lord. That, that is, in the next chapter, he'll speak of, he's going to talk about humbling ourselves, casting our cares on the Lord. That's what we do in suffering. We cast ourselves, we cast our cares, we give ourselves to him. So what are you struggling and suffering with tonight? Where in your life, what's keeping you up at night? What's a burden on your soul? What is it? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's a wayward kid or a kid heading that direction. Maybe it's the health of one of your children. Maybe it's that you, um, you want to be married and you're not. Maybe it's that you're about to lose your job. Maybe you're having financial, uh, traumatic financial situations. Maybe uh, there is so much pressure at work uh, or in your family that it is just wearing you down. We can look at how the Lord has cared for us. We look at what Christ has done for us, and he is worthy to entrust ourselves, to just rest ourselves uh, upon him. And that is something that sometimes we need to do mentally. When you find yourself during the day worried about that situation, worried about that conversation that you're going to have or may have or that they may have with you, worry about that doctor's report that you're waiting on, uh, worry to find, when you think about that, sometimes we need to just stop and by the grace of God say, Lord, I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm entrust right now, stopping, and I'm entrusting my soul to you. Yes, that conversation may go like I'm thinking. It may go worse. It'll probably go better. That's my experience. But it may go worse. But that's okay. I'm entrusting myself to you. So we entrust. That's what he tells them to do. You just have to, in the midst of suffering, you have to think right. You have to, have to not be surprised. You have to... Uh, you have to rejoice, and then we entrust. There's no rejoicing without entrusting. So we entrust ourselves to the Lord, and then we just do good. That's what he says to the suffering people. He doesn't say, hide out, back off, lay low, get in, the, get in a foxhole, lay low, get in a bunker, lay low and see if the storm passes. No, he says, do good. Entrust yourself to the Lord and do good. He's been talking about doing good the whole book. Chapter 2, verse 1. Put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. You're suffering? Use your speech for the glory of God and turn from sinful speech. He says, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. He says, keep serving, keep loving others. So when they see that in the midst of your suffering, some of them are going to turn to God. They're going to believe because of you. Uh, verse uh, 13 of chapter 2. Be subject to every human institution. Joyfully submit to the emperor, he says. 
So joyfully submit to the political, those who oversee us politically. Um, Servants, submit to your masters. Wives to your husbands. And husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Always be prepared, he says, to to give a defense to anyone who asks about the hope within you. But do it with gentleness and respect. So if you do have to be compelled to write a comment in response to something, do it with gentleness and respect so that you're, you're, there's a winsomeness to your heart and your character. Above all, uh, chapter 4, keep loving one another earnestly. Entrust yourself to the Lord and love those you're building your lives with. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't hide out. Open your home. But we're suffering. Open your home. But it's difficult. Open your home. But people are resisting us. Welcome others is what he says. Entrust yourself to the Lord. He's not saying be defensive. He's saying we're on the offense, church. We're on the offense. We're not on self-righteous offense. We're not on arrogant offense. We're not on we're the perfect prophet that will judge everybody. We're holy and you're not. We're not on that offense. We're on the offense of come on in. We're open. We're on the offense of loving, serving, gentleness, respect, humility. We're on the offense getting the gospel to people and living it out together. So don't give up. Entrust yourself and do good. This is what it looks like to entrust our soul to the Lord. To entrust our soul to the Lord means that that we rely on him and we trust him and we move forward in faith. See, one of the main reasons that we have trials in our lives, I can speak personally for myself, I won't entrust myself to the Lord when it's all going great. I'll just feel pretty good about how things are going. But when it's not going well, I'm on my knees. I'm on my knees. Figuratively. I'm on my, I mean, I may be driving in the car, but I'm crying out to God. It's when there is difficulty that I say, oh, Lord, help me. My tendency is to forget when it's going well. My tendency is to take credit. My tendency is not to see my need for the Lord. My tendency is, that's too bad. They're really struggling. I I don't really deal with stuff like that when things are going great. When things are going bad, we cry out and entrust. One of the main reasons that difficulties come is it's purifying so that we entrust and then do good by faith. And this is how the world will be changed. When the church takes on the character of Jesus, identifying with Christ, when we entrust ourselves to him, and when we live filled with his spirit because of the gospel, because of the good news of what he's done for us, he's changing us to live more like him for others. And we share that good news with others. That's the hope of the world. The hope of the world is the message that Jesus died for sinners, that he was buried, he rose the the third day, and anyone who will believe can have his sins forgiven. That's the good news. And that good news is lived out by a church in the midst of suffering. And our most compelling witness is not when we're on the top of the world. Our most compelling witness is when we're praising Jesus down in the gutter. That's our most compelling witness. It's the sick person who's praying for healing, but the sick person who is praising God in their hospital bed God is good. That is compelling. There's no explanation for that. It's the person who just lost their job, who is trusting the Lord, has no explanation, is, yes, tempted by fear, but is rejoicing and trusting the Lord for the next step. There's no explanation for that. There's no explanation for that. So it is in the midst of our suffering that we 
have an opportunity to be the greatest witness that we will ever be. That is how God will reach the world through a suffering church empowered by his spirit. For the spirit of glory and the spirit of God is on us in the midst of our suffering. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.